Hello there, everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit. My name is Rob, and I'm very hot, and I've seen every <laughs> single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. My name is Lizzie, and I'm also very hot, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. You, uh, if you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. If you want to drop us a line from, uh, away from our episodes or have a little chat with me over social media. And uh, I actually have a little question for people who are listening in this week. Uh, if you want to, come and find us on Twitter. I want to know something. How and where do you listen to our episodes? Like, what are you doing? Like, do you... I mean, just for example, I like to listen to podcasts when I'm working away on something, or if I'm doing the dishes, or something like that, or if I'm playing, like, a video game that doesn't need any volume, I'll throw a podcast on. Uh, I want to know. Um, and uh, I don't know. Maybe the, the most bizarre location will get a prize. Like, do you walk... Do you, do you like, climb a tree to listen to your podcast or something like that. I want to know. So get in yeah. touch. We're Longest Night GOT, at Longest Night GOT on Twitter. Uh, right. I think the lesson from this week's episode is that we need to be careful near giant holes in the floor. So we're going to get to that, play our titles, and we'll see you on the other side. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 4, Episode 7 of Game of Thrones, entitled Mockingbird. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by Alex Sakharov. It was first broadcast on May 18th, 2014, to an audience of 7.2 million viewers. It's a new series high. Again, I feel like I'm going to be saying that a lot in these intros from now on. Um... Lizzie, what are your general thoughts about Mockingbird? Well, last week was one of the few times where I reached the end of the episode and I had to physically restrain myself from immediately putting the next one on because I was <laughs> I was dying to see the trial by combat and stupidly I thought it would be in this episode. I think if I wasn't a lapsed viewer, I might have been somewhat more disappointed with this episode given that it didn't actually happen, but... You know, you put all that aside, it's a decent episode. It's one of the one of many sort of transitional episodes used to kind of set up the finale, you know, the bear and the maiden fair comes to mind. But there's some very welcome character moments in this nonetheless, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, it's very much an A to B episode. Um definitely one of the show's stronger A to B episodes, in my opinion. Yeah. I think the two scenes at the end where Oberyn comes to visit Tyrion and then everything that happens at the Eyrie uh, really elevate the episode into just about greatness territory, I think, for the show. Uh, it's my least favourite episode of the second half of the season. So from last week until the end of the season, it is my least favourite episode and I still have quite a high opinion of it. Make yeah. of that what you will. Um, I think what you've just mentioned there, though, about the uh, lack of trial by combat... Back to season one, where Tyrion demands a trial by combat, and then it kind of happens in the same episode, and I think it kind of gives a false impression about the way yeah. Tyrion's trial has been organised in the show, yeah. uh, in, in King's Landing, where it's, it's a much more long, drawn-out uh, process, where it's, it's kind of funny how, like, this season, Tyrion has basically broken up with Shay, visited a wedding... And then kind of sat in a cell <laughs> for weeks and weeks on end. Well, it's, um, it's, yeah. it's not too dissimilar to Ned, you know, when he got into King's Landing yeah. and then he just sat in a prison cell for about two or three episodes. Two or three episodes, before, episodes yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I agree like uh, that it's an A to B episode, but um, I think it's a strong one. I think it's, its end kind of elevates it above a, a simple kind of, as you say, transition episode. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that. You would cut off our legs. Pluck out our eyes. Leave us cowering behind the wall, hoping for the storm to pass. We can't defend the gate against 100,000 men. This castle has stood for thousands of years. The Night's Watch has defended her for thousands of years. And in all those centuries, we have never sealed the tunnel. Have you ever seen a giant, Sir Alistair? I have. The tunnel's gate won't stop them. The bars on those gates are four inches thick. Cold rolled steel. And they won't stop them. 
Upon returning from Craster's Keep, John is instructed by Sir Alistair to lock Ghost away. And afterwards, during a meeting of uh, Night's Watch brothers, John pleads with Sir Alistair to seal the tunnel into the castle to try and stop Mance's army from getting through, but his request is denied, with Sir Alistair arguing that a sealed tunnel would stop the Night's Watch from being able to carry out ranging duties in the future. Um... It's kind of like being back in season one all over again, isn't it? Uh, John and yeah. Sir Alice are at each other's uh, at each other's throats again. It's just that um, I suppose Sir Alice has got a little dog next to him with John Oslint kind of backing up everything he says and occasionally yapping in John's face. Uh, what do you make of the stuff at Castle Black, though? I'm glad we're getting this out of the way early because I think this is my major sort of down point of the episode. Okay. I wrote this was literally a forgettable scene in that I forgot it was in this episode until I, you know, came to type my notes for it. All right, then. Um, to I mean, to elaborate on that a little bit, it doesn't seem like they're treating Man's Raiders Army as much of a threat. It feels like we're, you know, we're going back to the mutineer thing again, where it's like, we know they're there, and we know this is going to be a big thing eventually, but, yeah, nobody really... There's no sense of imminent danger in hmm. in Castle Black. It just feels like everybody's going about their usual business. And I guess maybe that's what they're trying to aim for, you know, John trying to convince the elders that this is a threat and you should take it seriously. But there's not much of a sense of dread about it. it, it considering this is supposed to be like an imminent attack. You you don't and we're not seeing the other side or anything, so we don't really know where they are. All we have to go off is this, and it doesn't it doesn't really give you much to kind of chew on. Yeah, I think that this season, the stuff at Castle Black, there actually isn't if you think about it, if you take out the John's brief detour to Craster's Keep, there isn't actually any story at Castle Black this season. No. It's just kind of John gets back and they're having to really stretch out because you can tell that they're kind of they're making sure that lots of storylines end in the final two or three episodes of the season and that's you know that's that's totally fine that's totally normal storytelling in tv where you save all your big emotional stuff for the end of the season but it just means that yeah in these first seven or eight episodes it is all a little people at castle black just sort of looking at each other going okay yeah um what do we do? And um, it, it sounded like in The Simpsons, that itchy and scratchy thing where, um, is it itchy and scratchy where they, the the people sort of stop, they stop writing and then itchy and scratchy just sort of look at the camera and shrug their shoulders. I forget. Um, oh, that was, um, that was Bart's imagination, wasn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, that's it. It's Bart's imagination. <laughs> they sort of look at each other like, well, come on, well, give yeah. us something to do. And I feel like it's a little <laughs> bit like that. And so they may be doing a little bit of foreshadowing here where they're going to drop in the the tunnel will probably become important at some stage or another remember this viewers you know that that sort of thing and so i think that yeah the stuff the only real wildling perspectives we've had this season i don't think we've actually seen the wildlings of any description since the raid on uh ollie's village in episode three so yeah it's been a little while they're sort of out of the way um it is coming, and you know it, it does all lead to something. But I agree that I think that there is a little bit of standing around and waiting, and sort of hoping that the promise of something more climactic it sustains you through these scenes. That is why I've put this at the start because I think it's always easy, really, to separate the Castle Black stuff and the stuff in Essos and Marine away from the center of the story, and it's just kind of. Castle Black this week, like there's a scene where John says, "Oh, we should seal a tunnel," and Sir Alistair says, "No, shut up. I'm in charge here for some reason." And so I think it's just because he's first ranger and he's stepped forward, and there's no Lord Commander yet, so you know that sort of thing. But it all seems like yeah, we're back in season one. We don't like Sir Alistair. We're kind of retreading over old ground while talking about stuff that's to come. So it's it's fine. Like it's not a good or a bad scene. It's just kind of there. Um. It's yeah. all part of the rich Game of Thrones tapestry. And I think, Lizzie, you're maybe kind of getting the point now with Game of Thrones that the way that it organises its seasons and the way that it's written is quite 
it, I think it's more economical than people uh, let themselves believe sometimes. I think there's a lot of people who seem to think that, like, oh, the um, the especially the early seasons of the show are just like this fluid, uh, organic tapestry of, like, um, oh, God, it's such beautiful, flowing storytelling and stuff. Oh, and, like, okay. it is that, but it, but it achieves the big emotional moments by doing these slow, put-the-blocks-into-place. The amount of times... David Benioff and Dan Weiss talk about the story that they're telling as if it's a chessboard where is, is uh, if I had a nickel like you know it's one of those things where they constantly talk about the chessboard chess pieces moving pieces all very deliberately and it's just I think that these scenes as much as they're kind of you know a bit near in the moment I think that the payoff that they get is just kind of worth it and then when you go back through the show you're sort of like oh yeah they mention it here and that's fine so it's all very it, they, they're kind of holding your hand about stuff at the moment which I think is fine I think I think that's alright it's not doesn't make for a particularly exciting sequence but we, we have talked about it for longer than I expected to assume so yeah it's, it's slow burn television isn't it I, like, I do like the idea of the imminent threat but yeah that's my only complaint really that they don't seem to be pussing it over much other than just saying it's going to happen at some point, maybe next week, who knows. When I looked into the flames this morning, the Lord spoke to me. He said, tonight you will have your last good bath in a long while. Make it count. A joke. <laughs> Not a very good one, I'm afraid. It was. I. Humour isn't my strength. That's because most jokes are lies, and you're devoted to the truth. Um, at Dragonstone, Celise visits Lady Melisandre while she's bathing, and Melisandre tells Celise about her use of potions and illusions, and argues that using a little bit of pageantry and deception to convince people to follow the Lord of Light is, you know, the right thing to do. And then, you know, the conversation carries on, and it ends up with Melisandre telling Celise that Shireen will be needed when they set sail, wherever it is, they're going to go. So another kind of short scene at uh, Dragonstone, which again is why I'm putting it nice and early in the episode. Um, but I did find it quite interesting that the naked person in this scene has way more power and is way more intimidating than the person who is fully clothed. Like, Celise is just, like, quivering in her presence sometimes and is, like, very doubtful True. and second-guesses herself a lot. And I, I do like that. Um, she's having lots of second thoughts about how she's feeling about her faith and Stannis' affair with Melisandre that she's been aware of and has said it's completely fine. But now, is she feeling the same way? Who knows? Um, but what did you make of the Dragonstone stuff? Yeah, and just to further your point, I think it's the contrast between their appearance. You know, mm. Melisandre is obviously this kind of lush, red-headed, uh, just this radiant woman, and Celise is kind of, you know, quite thin and pale, and yeah, it's that the complete polar opposites of, um, you know, Stannis' partners, shall we say. Yeah. And yeah, I think even like the physical performances as well, like the way Celise just looks at Melisandre like she is a goddess, like she's something she's never encountered before, that she's not barely even human. Hmm. It's it's a really interesting dynamic. And also, yeah, there's the the kind of looming prospect of Celise's daughter being used as sacrifice, I took it as a baby. Um, I I kind of know what you mean, but I guess I think the scene kind of deliberately leaves it open to maybe a bit of interpretation. Um, the question that I did want to ask you is, where do you think this is all leading? Because obviously, Melisandre and Celise have been left behind. Like, Davos and Stannis have gone to the Iron Bank of Bravos, and then they've set sail somewhere because Salador San is taking them somewhere. But where do you think this is all kind of going? Like, what do you think Stannis' next plan is? Like, you know, he's left Melisandre behind initially, but he needs Selyse and Melisandre now, and they're going to set sail to go and find him and uh, meet up with him. But wh where do you think this is going for Stannis? I don't know, because once you've taken away this this rightful king thing, it's hard to really say. Like, we're not in the War of the Five Kings anymore. 
Mm. So his intentions are a little bit less clear. A good kidney pie is all about the ingredients. Flour, lard, water, eggs, milk. Easy enough. But the meat, peacetime or not, getting your hands on a good bottom round steak and Carl's kidneys is not easy. I mean, some people set for plain old beef kidneys. <laughs> Got a right to cook anything then. Oh, the gravy. Don't get me started on the gravy. Very difficult to get right. See, a lot of people give up on the gravy. You cannot give up on the gravy. No gravy, no pie. Simple as that. In the Riverlands, Brienne and Podrick stop off at an inn where they are served kidney pie by none other than Hot Pie. Hey. And, yeah, and Lady Brienne tells Hot Pie that they are searching for Sansa Stark. And Hot Pie tells Brienne that while he may not have seen Sansa, he has seen Arya. And he says that he uh, he says that she is with the Hound. And Brienne and Podrick decide to go to the Vale to find Arya because that's where they think that she'll go. Uh, meanwhile, Arya and Sandor encounter a dying farmer, and after they provide a merciful death to that farmer who's been stabbed, uh, Sandor is attacked and bitten by a guy called Rorge, and later, while cleaning his wound, uh, he explains to Arya the whole history behind him being scared of fire. Um, this is where I think the stronger threads of uh, the episode come in. We'll talk about hi. Uh, we'll talk about the Hound and Arya first, and then okay. we'll move on to Brienne and Hot Pie and Podrick and all that. Um, I think that this is where it's not something that's really strong in the episode, but there are scenes in this episode, mainly in King's Landing and the Eyrie, and and here too, where um, it's very much like man feelings, like men and their emotions and how men deal with strong emotions and how they choose to let their guard down or not let their guard down. And I think that the conversation that the Hound has with Arya where he finally kind of lets her in a little bit is really sweet. Um, I think this is the point in the story where I have to kind of stop calling him the Hound because that's a name that was given to him. And it's a name that represents something that maybe on the inside he's not. Um, he's clearly a big softy, and so I'm going to try and call him Sandor, make an effort to call him Sandor from this day forth. Um, what did you make, though, of the scene with the the dying farmer? I don't know if you took any notes about that. Um, I guess the only real note I took was that it's kind of like... I'd, it's not really fleshed out much, but you know that kind of areas of mercy killing someone, and you wonder if maybe Sandor might have wanted the same after what happened to him in his childhood. Yeah. I didn't. I wish I could have fleshed it out a bit more because there was maybe something in that. But yeah, I think it almost seems like Arya's sort of used to doing this on the road now. Um, the scene with the farmer. Um, one thing I did find interesting is that it's another guy who's just been abandoned by yeah yeah people who are supposed to look after the countryside like the land is so war-torn it's not safe you get prisoners from season two randomly popping up and Aya conveniently reminds us of exactly who this guy is and where we last saw him and before he <laughs> before he attacks the hound um but I think that the scene with the farmer also says a lot about where Arya is and the fact that she's becoming increasingly open to this idea of, like, oblivion and, like, complete nihilism. Yeah. Where, you know, this idea that, like, nothing is better than whatever this is and seeking death and, like, going further down this road to sort of, like... I mean, she has a very messed up relationship with death because of how much she's seen of it and how much it's affected her. And maybe she's starting to become, I don't know, not an admirer of it or anything like that. But do you know what I mean? Like her perspective has been so, it's mutated so much that in a moment like this, it does reveal um, quite a lot. Um, I think that the the scene with Rorge where he suddenly comes out of nowhere, I feel like they might have been better served maybe breaking away from the Hound and Aya after the knife has gone into his heart and then like you know cut away do a few more scenes then come back because it does all feel a bit meshed together but like you know it's fine um we get a nice little piece of information that um aria and 
uh, that sorry that Sandor isn't a wanted man for necessarily for fleeing King's Landing, but you know they've stumbled across the scene at the start of the season uh, with Polyver and all of his dead men. Yeah. Um, and that's you know the, the, there's now the silver the, there's a, a price on the hound's head. Um, but no, I think you know it's nice, it's good. Um, I love the design of the little farmhouse that they're near, like all the fog that's kind of in and out of the wooden beams and. Again, it's another, like I say, it's another guy who has been left to kind of fend on his own and he's been very badly let down by people who were supposed to look after this land and it kind of proves that while things are steadying ever so slightly in King's Landing, there's a whole continent that, you know, it's decided that, like, you know, the land is too big to rule by one person. Or it's the land is too big for one person to rule. Tommen is king, but he has no idea about anything that's happening here because as far as they're all concerned in King's Landing the war is over and yeah. if the war is over then they can forget about it and all of these people have been forgotten about and the Ayer and the Hound just seem to keep stumbling across these people who are just kind of wandering the Riverlands with nowhere to go and no security and no safety yeah and the Riverlands seems to be full of these little anonymous places where like they don't even have names every time we've visited um, Arya and Sandor in the season it has just been in the Riverlands it could be anywhere Yeah, but it's because it's um, you know it's so far away from you know from King's Landing from the rest of society and that it maybe does feel like Sandor feels like he could open himself up because it's not there's not that weight of expectation there mm-hmm. yeah it's just Arya that he's speaking to yeah it is just them two in this anonymous void in the middle of Westeros, you know. Ire in the hills. Yes. <laughs> it makes, again, it just makes makes the world feel so big. It really does. It, really it makes does, it yeah. feel so big and real. Um, so, we get a nice bit of uh, a bit of comedy at, um, at an inn, at the roadside inn, where we last saw Hot Pie at the start of season three, and yep. here he is, at the end hey. of season four. Pops up out of nowhere, Um gives a really good uh, explanation of how to make a pie and that you can't give up on the gravy. Can't <laughs> give up on the gravy, Lizzie. Um, no, no. But I think the the moment, really, that seals this scene and elevates it from something more than just, oh, it's hot pie, remember that guy, is the really lovely punctuation at the end of it where he hands the wolf to Brienne, the, yeah. the breaded wolf. And I think that... That is such a lovely little sort of like it's somewhere between an ellipses and a full stop on that scene because obviously the scene carries on when Brienne and Podrick decide to go to the Vale, but Hot Pie's involvement in the scene ends with such a gorgeous little grace note. I think is probably the best word for it, and Brienne kind of looks at it, and obviously Brienne has no idea of the significance of this, but like seeing how far he's come on as a baker, the fact that he's still thinking about Arya, and. Yeah, no, it's just very... The fact that, like, after they had that conversation and he knew that Brienne and Podrick were going to go and try and find Arya, possibly, or Sansa, and he's like, oh, I'll just, I'll just rush in the back and make this, and he's made it dead quickly, and, yeah, I think it's very, very... It's very, very sweet. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's also in that moment as well, like, um, initially when they meet Hot Pie, I think Brienne especially is a bit unsure of him, like, not not sure how reliable he is in what he's saying about Arya, but I think when he gives her that, um, what is it like, is it bread or is it a biscuit? I'm not sure what it is. Kind of halfway between the two, I think. Okay. Yeah, so he gives her that, and I think in that moment she she's like, oh, actually, I think, yeah, this guy is, you know, he means what he says. He, hmm. he must have known Arya, because why would he give us this, you know, random piece of bread that has some significance that I don't know about. I think, yeah, it's quite genuine, the sentiment there. And, and Hot Pie, as much as initially he was a, a bit of a little shit, um, you did get that sense from him that he was just this sort of troubled kid, but he was he was well-meaning, ultimately. Yeah, I think so, and I think this does, uh, this does confirm it. A little question for yep. you. Uh, do you think this is the last that we'll see of Hot Pie? Um, I, well, I want to say no because I do want to see him again. Um, okay. And also, 
given that this is the inn we've been to a few times before, I have a feeling that we will see him again, but I don't know in what capacity. Okay, it's just, then. Because it's kind of one of those, it's like a fixed location in the middle of nowhere. It's a good place for characters to kind of stop off, I suppose, which is why you get these interactions. Like, I wouldn't have expected him to show up in this season. I thought, you know, maybe later down the line when he's grown up. Hmm. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining. It's uh, It was really nice to see him here. The man who came to me the other day about burying his father. His does old Lorak. He will accompany the second sons and serve as my ambassador to Yunkai. He will tell the masters what has happened in Marim. He will explain the choice they have before them. They can live in my new world or they can die in their old one. We'll go and catch Daria before he leaves. Tell him I changed my mind. In Marine, uh, late at night, Dario finds his way into Daenerys's private chambers, and it's implied that the two of them have sex. Uh, the next morning, Sajora arrives to speak with Daenerys, only to find Dario on his way out. Uh, <laughs> Daenerys then tells Jora that she is sending Dario to Yunkai to kill the remaining masters and retake the city, because obviously it's fallen back into old ways. But Jorah counsels her against this, and Daenerys is convinced to send Hisdar Zolorak along with the Second Sons and Dario in order to advise the masters of Daenerys's new way of things rather than kill them. Um, I find the scene with Dario and Daenerys very interesting. Um, yeah. I am kind of... The only thing, I guess, is the only little bum note in the scene, I think, is that I kind of wish that they hadn't cut away because this is a big moment for Dario and Daenerys. But I think it's it's a bigger moment for Daenerys, really, because Dario was snuck into Daenerys's chambers before. We saw it in season three with yeah. the guy's heads when he, you know... But that was he was in disguise and he came into her room as somebody else. And so, this time, though, he has come in as himself with intentions of just like, well, why else do you randomly walk into somebody's bedroom late at night, you know? And Daenerys' reaction to it is very interesting because I think it's something that she's been denying herself for most of the season, which is that clearly there's some kind of chemistry going on between these two. And I think Daenerys has kind of tried to pretend that she's not very impressed by Dario. And this time, she lets her guard down ever so slightly, but in a way where she orders him to take his clothes off. And I love the dynamics at play, and I find it very interesting. And it is a little bit of a shame that I think the first union between these two characters, we don't get to experience it, and we don't get to live in the moment. And I think that... But then I think that maybe... It would maybe wouldn't be as funny if um, the following morning, you know, it say we say we see Dario and Daenerys have a love scene or whatever, and then the next morning they undercut it slightly with the joke with Dario. You know, m maybe there's an element of surprise in the joke that yeah. Dario is there. Like Dario's just always there, but Jorah's thinking everywhere I turn, you're there. Like so, <laughs> um, but. What do you make of the marine stuff in general this week? What do you want to talk about first? Yeah, well, I almost feel like we've covered some of this stuff before. It's like that, that too many cooks thing that's going on with um, Daenerys' council at the minute. Mm. And particularly with um, with Jorah and Dario, there's that sense of you know resentment, particularly from Jorah to, to Dario, because he's basically usurped him. Like, there's... We haven't seen as much of Jorah this season, whereas, you know, when we've seen Daenerys previously, you know, season one, two, three, he's been there mm. pretty much all the way. He's been the number one person to go to, and he's usually been right, in fairness. Like, he was right about Zaros on Daxos in season two. Yes. And I wonder if he worries that maybe Daenerys getting a bit too close to Dario means he has more influence over her and that could potentially turn into something something that would rather be avoided 
Hmm. What, th- what that is, I don't know. But yeah, I think it, he's maybe thinking it's distracting from Daenerys's bigger plan of taking the Iron Throne. Hmm. Okay. Um, I did want to mention two lines from the season, uh, from the scene that Jorah and Daenerys uh, have together. Um, the first one that I wanted to ask you about um, is. Uh, they can live in my new world or they can die in their old one, which I think is a a great line. Did you make anything of that when she mentioned it? Or is it more of a one that you just kind of think, yeah, that seems pretty consistent with the whole thing that's going on? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty in character for Daenerys, I suppose. Cool. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't have any notes about it, but yeah. Um, and the other one as well is the one that I love, and I think it's my favourite moment in Marine. Um, at this week is just that bit where she stops Jorah and she says, actually, no, tell him that you changed my mind. And it's like, she just throws him a little bone because she can see that he's upset that Dario's <laughs> marking his territory around Daenerys and Jorah's like, oh, well, I used to be in the inner ring and now I'm sort of in the outer bit of the inner ring. Let me back in the inner ring. And she's sort of like, I'll throw you a bone. Go on then, you know. And I think it. I think it's really nice, but I think it shows that you know Jorah still has a lot of. Uh, I don't quite know what the word is, but he's much better at counselling Daenerys. I think he's a much healthier influence for Daenerys than Dario is, because Daenerys is sort of exercising two or three muscles with two or three of her different counsellors, where Dario is. Um, He's maybe got a good combative mind and he's useful as a soldier. And he's also, well, he's quite a lot of the, uh, lot of the physical muscles that Daenerys has. She exercises with Dario. And then a lot of the more political, strategic stuff and just friendship in general with Jorah, she exercises that muscle with him. And I think that as much as it's creating problems for her advisors, Daenerys has a good dynamic of people around her. It's just that they do all keep deciding that they know best <laughs> yeah. amongst themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I want to bring those who have wronged me to justice and all those who have wronged me are right here. I will begin with Sir Gregor Clegane, who killed my sister's children and then raped her with their blood still on his hands before killing her too. be your champion. In King's Landing, Tyrion is informed by Jamie that Cersei has chosen the Mountain as her champion, and both Jamie and Bronn then decline to be Tyrion's champion, fearing for their own safety, and Bronn also informs Tyrion that he is to be married to uh, one Lollis Stokeworth, and all seems lost for Tyrion. But then he's visited by Prince Oberyn, and Oberyn begins by telling Tyrion the story of when Oberyn visited Tyrion as a baby, and how Tyrion was advertised as this monstrous freak, but turned out to be just a normal baby. And he explains again that the mountain was responsible for the rape and murder of his sister, Elia Martell, and her three children. And seeking justice himself, he tells Tyrion that he will be his champion, and attempt to avenge his dead sister. Um, what notes have you got about King's Landing this week? Well, I guess we'll start from the top. Um, we finally see Gregor Clegane, Mark Three. Yes. Always going to be another mountain. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't no mountain high enough. Um, et cetera, well, et cetera. this guy is huge. Um, oh, he is. Yeah. If you have seen him in real life, I think he's like seven foot two. Something crazy Shit. like that. He is. I love that shot of him and Cersei against the wall. And when he's like, oh, my fighting. And it's like, <laughs> I just think it's so funny. Um, but this, this guy is the best looking mountain, I think. Yeah, but that's the thing. He's not just tall. He's like built like a brick shithouse. He's enormous. Yes. I think I, I can only sort of vaguely remember the second mountain. But I remember he was tall, but he wasn't especially sort of big and you know like he could sort of rip up a phone book in front of your face like (laughs) yeah um very much looking forward to seeing more of this and i have a feeling we're gonna see him next week 
But I got uh, wrong. Well, we're probably going to see him at some point in the future because, you know, there's going to be a trial by combat and he's involved. Yeah, so and whatever so, that is, be yeah. it next week or the week after or the week after that. Mm. We'll see him again. And yeah, yes, glad he's finally here because it was starting to feel like they keep talking about him, but he never actually shows up. I, I said, was it last week? I said Chekhov's Mountain. It was starting to feel a bit like that. But yeah, here we are. And, and here he is. Yeah, and they make a good point of mentioning that there's nobody else really that could be impressive in that role. It's like, imagine if it was Samarin Trent. Yeah. I'm sure Jamie probably could beat him, even though he can't hit a cow's ass with a banjo at the minute. <laughs> I kind of love how there's been some foreshadowing far away from this, where the Hound laughs at the idea of Merrin Trant being useful with a sword. <laughs> and yeah. so, of course, they wouldn't use him. Um, I think, to me, this is another part of my men with feelings uh, whole thing that kind of runs through bits of this episode. Mm is the, the conversations that Tyrion and Bronn and Tyrion and Jaime have with each other, and then eventually Tyrion and Oberyn, where Tyrion is basically a wall this, sea, uh, this episode, where it's a chance for Jaime to turn up and explain how he feels about the situation and then say, mm. no, I don't want to be your champion, I can't be. And then it's a chance for Bronn to show up and say, well, like, I like you and everything, but I don't know if I like you that much to risk my life for you. I've already done it once, so no, sorry. And then Oberyn turns up and he's like, look, we have barely any history together, but I have this personal vendetta, so I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do love that. I like how Tyrion's inner circle has... I mean, we were kind of talking about it when Podrick left, and now Shay has, you know, like that's all, you know, she, well, we thought she left and then she came back to testify against him. But Tyrion's inner circle, where if you think about it, like seasons two and three, Tyrion was always surrounded by Bronn, by Shay, by Podrick. Uh, and then eventually, you know, this season he's been hanging out with Jamie. Mm. But it's all kind of peeling away where like Podrick's left at first for his own safety, then Bronn. Now Jay, uh, Jamie said no, and Shay's testified against him, and it all feels like it's all kind of crumbling down on Tyrion, and he's at the bottom of, you know, the bottom of the red keep in a cell, and is really running out of options. And then through the mist and through the fog comes Prince Oberyn bearing a torch, saying, "I will be your champion," and just like you know, good old sexy Pedro Pascal comes waltzing through. And saves the day and uh, gives gives us a bit of hope at the end of a bleak situation for Tyrion. Um, what did you make of the story that Oberyn told? Um, well, I, the thing is I didn't actually make much of that. I think most of my notes come from, um, you know, the prospect of what's to come with the, the trial by combat. And mm -hmm. the one thing I did mainly note is that both outcomes of the fight arguably benefit Tywin in that Gregor winning would obviously mean Tywin could inflict whatever punishment he chooses on Tyrion as well as being rid of an inconvenient critic in Oberyn but Oberyn winning and slaying Gregor could be Tywin's way of wiping the slate clean between King's Landing and Dawn. You know, he might well say that mm. Oberyn wanted revenge and you got it so there's nothing more for me to do. Off you go, bye. And then, yet yeah, uh, Tyrion's still on his own, in a way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, um, one thing I should mention is that back in season one, when I interviewed your weirdo friend Cass, who yeah. uh, was a YouTuber who was reacting to Game of Thrones, I asked her, what is your favourite scene in the whole of Game of Thrones? And she picked this. Wow, okay. She picked Prince Oberyn's monologue and then the ending declaration of I will be your champion. And it is a, it's a very, I will be your champion is a very popular line and I think it's a wonderful scene and I think it reveals rather a lot about Oberyn and his whole, the way that he's behaved ever since Tyrion was framed, basically. Because I'll take you back to episode five of this season where... Yeah. 
I was kind of leading you down the garden path a little bit with regards to Cersei's intentions in that conversation uh, that she has with Oberyn, where she's like, oh, please, you know, look after Marcella. We have to look after our children. We have to do this. We have to do that. And, like, Oberyn has quietly just been absorbing all this and now is stood there with Tyrion going, listen, Cersei, she came. She she tried to manipulate me. Like, she knew I was on the jury. She came and she had words with me, and I was just... uh, I didn't... I've not really taken any of them in, to be honest. I knew what her game was. I have my own personal feelings about being in King's Landing, and I'm here to do this. And it does... I feel like it all... Regardless of what happens in the future... Oberyn's story so far this season really feels like it culminates in this moment because from the moment he arrived in King's Landing, he has been seeking out an audience with either Tywin Lannister or the Mountain or both. Yeah. And it all feels like it's been building to this and I think they do a very good job of just dropping in again that the Mountain was responsible for the deaths of Elia Martell and uh, her children, because obviously Elia Martell was with Rhaegar Targaryen, and they had children, and they were Targaryen children, and obviously when the Targaryens were all overthrown, um, before the events of the series, um, the unfortunately Elia Martell and the children were caught up in that, and the mountain was, you know, ordered to kill them, and so... And, Oberyn either thinks that Tywin either gave the order or the Mountain did it himself, but he's wanted an audience with both of them for seven episodes now, and he's seen his chance. And if you go back and watch the trial scene, Mm. it's an amazing moment, and I absolutely love it. And it's something I didn't want to talk about last week because, obviously, it would lead to this, Um, which is just that when Tyrion says, I demand a trial by combat, and it goes to Marjorie first and we were talking about how like Marjorie knows the truth but she said nothing they next go to Oberyn he's the second person they go to and then they go to Cersei who does that brilliant uh, Lena Headey does that brilliant curl of her fingers on the arm of the chair but Oberyn the way he leans forward in his chair like some light bulb has gone off in his head where it's yeah. like this is my moment I can do this and it's like <laughs> yeah Awesome, great little moment to look back on that enhances, I think this scene and the trial scene, they enhance each other when played together. Um, And yeah, no, it's just, it's an awesome moment. And I think that it's not my favorite scene in the show, this by any means, but I think it's a cool scene. I think it's my favorite scene in the episode. I do love the story about him going to Castle Rock and seeing that Tyrion was just this ordinary kid. Um, and that Oberyn kind of realizes that Tyrion has been. I mean, they he kind of says, you know, that him and Tyrion kind of have this weird kinship where like Lannisters don't like them. Yeah. And yeah. I think that Oberyn kind of recognizes that even though him and Tyrion don't have much of a history together, they do have a shared feeling and a shared experience of it, like basically living under the shadow of the Lannister name. And yeah, so it's cool, and I'm excited to see how you feel about how everything plays out over the next bit of time in in Game of Thrones for Oberyn and the Mountain and for Tyrion and Tywin and Cersei and everyone who's in King's Landing. My sweet, <laughs> silly wife. <laughs> I have only loved one woman. Only one my entire life. Your sister. At the Eyrie, Sansa builds a model of Winterfell in the snow. And when Robin tries to make a few uh, improvements by adding a moon door, he accidentally knocks it over. And that leads to a bit of an argument uh, during which Sansa slaps Robin across the face and he runs off crying. Uh, as he is often wont to do and Littlefinger witnesses this and tells her not to worry that he'll take care of it and then sensing his weird chance he tells Sansa about the love that he had for her mother Catelyn Stark and how it has kind of mutated and transformed into a love for Sansa and then he kisses Sansa and the kiss is witnessed by Lysa Arryn who is watching from a balcony Terrible time in there, Lysa. Uh, Lysa then finds Sansa and threatens her by holding her over the moon door. Uh, Littlefinger arrives and begins to tell Lysa that she needs to calm down 
and that he has only loved one woman his whole life. And then he drops the bomb that the woman he's loved his entire life is Catelyn Stark. And mm-hmm. after this revelation, he pushes her to her death through the moon door. And the episode cuts to black on the sound of her screaming and <laughs> falling into, into the abyss of the mountains below. Um, the Veil this week. What, what are your immediate takeaways from The Veil? Um, okay, well, let's go back to the start, first of all. Um <laughs> I'm finding myself saying poor Sansa a lot recently. Um, I think her snow castle of Winterfell is one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking images we've we've seen in the show so far. And even Robin, when he comes in, he shows a sort of sympathetic side towards her at first. And you think, oh, wow, it's very mature for Robin, which we've, we've never actually seen that. And then he returns to his sort of infantile infatuation with power and revenge you know he seems to suggest that all of Winterfell's problems could have been solved with a moon door and you know Sansa slapping Robin shouldn't be a triumphant moment after he is just a kid and it's not really his fault that he's been raised in this isolated environment in the middle of nowhere floating through interstellar space with only his dosing mother and the promise of power to sustain him but it just about does because it's side of Sansa we've pretty much never seen we've only ever seen Sansa as you know kind and innocent perhaps because she's never really been in a position where she could fight back her natural humble nature is so often abused by much more powerful men and women around her and to strike out would mean putting her in danger which it very nearly did here so yeah I do think I do think this is a big moment for Sansa's character and it's proof that she won't tolerate the destruction of her family's legacy, and it still weighs heavy on her on her mind and her actions. Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant uh, summation of where Sansa is at the moment, and I completely agree that Sansa making a snow castle of Winterfell while the Stark theme plays. Yeah, and then she's even gone to the effort of putting a little branch in for the Godswood tree, and like, oof, at my heart. Um, and when she's talking to Robin as well, and she says, like, the way that she kind of ends the line is that, like, oh, my family doesn't live there anymore. Yeah. And it's like, I think, you know, we, we did have a conversation this week about this in the little messages that we do, which is that Sansa hasn't been seen in Winterfell since the second episode of the first season, Yeah, I think. Fuck. And even then, I think her time on camera is brief. And I'm not yeah. sure how much dialogue she gets. And yet, she is still so heavily, heavily associated with that castle and the way that it feels. And I think they do such a wonderful job in this show. And this is what makes it so amazing. And I think, well, part of what makes it so amazing, which is that Sansa has been away from any star, anybody with a Stark name for three seasons now, nearly. Yeah, And yet she shares, I think it's something that they get in the writing and in Sophie Turner's performance as well, where she behaves like a Stark. Yeah. And and I think that as much as, you know, the it, it's easy to associate Sansa with Winterfell while she's building a snow castle of it, it never feels forced. It just feels like a little girl... Because you were saying that, you know, Robin's a kid and, you know, not good to see him get slapped. But, like, Sansa's a kid too. And I think that Sansa's current way of expressing how she's feeling is to find some time alone away from everybody else and decides to... The first thing she decides to do is build a castle of her home. And the way she's talking about how, like, she can't even properly remember it. And that she doesn't quite know what it looks like anymore. And, uh, yeah, it's... It really is so heartbreaking, and I think that the people that she's surrounded by, clearly, you know, Littlefinger, we know that he only really wants what's best for himself, and he can't, even in a place where she's safe from any immediate danger, there's no reason why she wouldn't suddenly just become a pawn again in somebody else's game, and it feels like that's kind of where Littlefinger is trying to lead things with her and like he's trying to make a move on her now when she's definitely like, what, 14 15 years old Ugh. and so 
there's the creepy guardian element of it, and yeah, Sansa is just so alone, and you really feel it in her story. I think that there was a brief period of sadness, but it was at least she had some companionship with Tyrion, where they were they were going through the shit, but they were kind of going through it together and they understood each other a little bit, whereas it feels like now she's kind of back in this situation where even though she's surrounded by, you know, relatives, technically, it's not really home. You know, home will only be Winterfell with Starks and that feels so far away. And she may, I mean, she's kind of admitting it to herself that she doesn't know if she'll ever go back there and don't know if she can. Well, that's it, because I, I, I assume she knows about what's happened to Winterfell since. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really sad. And obviously she doesn't actually... I mean, again, and you know, stories spread and things like that. Um, I have a feeling that she doesn't know that Bran and Rickon are alive. I'm pretty sure she knows, she thinks that they're dead. Yeah, and for all um, she knows, Arya might be dead as well. Well, that's the story, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. She's not been seen since Ned Stark was beheaded. No. Um, again, this is something else I love about this. Where, like, because obviously you don't have facial recognition and shit like that. It just, it, again, I'm convinced that like this is like the greatest story ever told. I just think like, it, especially on TV, I just like these characters and the world and the families and the relationships and stuff like that. You take them all for granted when you're watching it because it flows over you like you never assume for a second that like Sansa isn't a Stark in this moment and that you 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 know it's, it's amazing how even within the Lannister family as well Cersei, Jaime, Tyrion, Tywin at the moment they're all so different from one another and yet yeah. they're so unmistakably Lannisters because of the way that they behave and the yes. way that they respond to scenarios and situations and stuff like that. Even Tyrion responds in a certain way. Absolutely. Similar to Cersei and and Jamie and Tywin more than he would admit, I think. And in this moment, I think the way that it's I mean, again, I think this is also the power of um Rami Javadi's score, where the power of the Stark theme that is the undercurrent of Sansa building it uh, in the building Winterfell in the snow and the whole thing comes together and oh it's uh like you say it is it, I think it is too much yeah I think it is too much yeah and so I suppose that brings us to the uh the latter half of events this week in the area <laughs> yeah from the uh from the sad to the ridiculous um yeah. so yeah it's fine I think it's fun I think it's a good scene <laughs> I think that like you know there isn't there is a bit of a danger with uh with Sansa being held over the moon door and everything like that but it is so funny I just think that the I think it's something that you can't <laughs> avoid it's just it it is silly it looks silly it sounds silly the whole thing is fundamentally <laughs> ridiculous where like a guy in his mid 40s has just kissed his 15 year old kind of niece but not really like you know someone who he's looking after and he's betrayed her trust in him as an adult and all that and the woman that he's just got married to is the sister of the woman that he's loved all his life she witnesses this blames the 15 year old kid or 14 year old (laughs) kid or whatever because she's so driven insane by jealousy and all the other stuff that goes wrong in your brain when you're as you say living in some kind of interstellar space fantasy land away from the floor where robin even i love that line where robin's like down on the ground isn't that dangerous and so (laughs) you know so you get to this point where she's holding her over the moon door threatening to kill her and then the guy who has caused all this waltzes into the scene and just has this like amazing influence over lysa who has gone off the deep end by this stage and he's like oh don't worry you've just seen me kiss this 14 year old but honestly it meant nothing i have only ever loved one woman i promise it's you i promise it's you ah no wait it's not you it's your sister and i've decided to take this moment to seize all power in the veil goodbye and pushes her through (laughs) through this hole in the floor yeah (laughs) it's just incredible it's so silly 
it, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It, but I love it. I do love it. It's so cartoony, isn't it? It's like, well, well first of all, you've got the, the pre-mortem one-liner. Thank you to TV Tropes for that one. Very, very apt. That's mm. bad enough. But I think the actual sight of Liza falling through the moon door and just like grasping at thin air like she's Wiley Coyote or something. <laughs> it looks so stupid. I, th- oh, I think God. it was kind of impressive the first time we saw it, you know, with the dead soldier because he yeah. was just... It's just lifeless body just drifting to the ground. And they're kind of... I remember the room being sort of silent as Tyrion and Bronn just kind of walk out like, right, we'll be off then. <laughs> but yeah, oh God, this is... Yeah, it, I guess it's a minor quibble and it's in the books as well. So it's not like we can blame Benioff and Vice for this, but yeah. <laughs> oh, people did find something to have a go at them for. Uh, oh, really? In this scene, yes. Uh, people were not happy that they changed the final line that Lysa ever hears. Um, where Littlefinger in, in the books... I mean, there's a whole other situation in the books from memory where some guards are trying to break down a door yeah. and there's a singer or a like a clown fool person present called Marillion, I think, <laughs> or something like that. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. And then... Um, and then Littlefinger says, I have only loved one woman my whole life, my sweet silly wife and all that. And then he goes, only cat, and pushes her out of the moon door. And then when the guards break down the door, Littlefinger turns to Marillion and says, this singer killed my wife. And that's the end of the book. Like, like there's an epilogue afterwards, but that's the end of the book. That's the last chapter in the book. And it's like, what? <laughs> So the the show gets rid of the guards and Marillion and then and then changes the line to your sister and people were not happy with your sister. The 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 essence of the scene is kept but one line gets changed and like people stick on it and it's like oh they changed it. No, but like I'm not here to compare whether things are better or worse. It's just that in if you divorce the TV show from the books for a second. Does the line work in the moment in the TV show? And yeah, it does. So that's fine to me. Uh, both versions are completely fine, and both versions are very silly. Oh, sorry, <laughs> You've been I, laughing a lot. So I, yeah. I wish you hadn't mentioned the clown because now, now I'm just thinking like he, you know he's on trial. It's like the only reason I'm on trial is because I'm a clown. I, <laughs> I demand a trial by combat. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on trial for that my entire life. Woo, watch me juggle. No, um... <laughs> yeah, then they send it to the wall. Like... <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Oh, God, I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, I think oh. it might be time to call time on this because we've clearly lost control. Yeah. The, heat, the heat has got to our heads. So, Lizzie, I'm going to ask for your line of the episode. Please tell me it's not your sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I'll have to change it now. Um now my line of the episode is um it's by Oberyn Martell. He says, I disagree. I've come to the perfect place. I want to bring those who have wronged me to justice, and all those who have wronged me are right here. I will begin with Sir Gregor Clegane, who killed my sister's children, and then raped her with their blood still on his hands before killing her too. I will be your champion. Yeah, I think that's a worthy, worthy winner this week. Yeah, and, great line. Uh, we'll get to see uh, the results next week, or the week after, or the week after that. Who knows? Indeed. Um, but before we get to those, I want to ask, who is your loser this week? Um, loser of the week is, yeah, it's, it's Peter. It's Littlefinger. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think uh, kissing Sansa and then killing somebody in the next scene is a hell of a one-two to and, get in your bad books. <laughs> yeah, just just to mention as well, he did almost get Sansa killed. You know, yes, Liza he was, did. He, yeah. Liza was holding her over the moon door. That was, you know, she was centimetres away from being killed. And then you'd have nothing. <laughs> over the edge. Jesus. Right, yeah. and who is your winner this week? Really tough one. Re- like, I'm, I'm still down to the wire between Sansa and Oberyn. But I am going to go with Sansa just because that... 
that snow sculpture of Winterfell and, yeah, the, the moment where she finally sort of breaks and slaps Robin. And, yeah, and also, that you know, that scene, you know, putting all the the stuff aside about her being pushed through the moon door, that scene with, um, with Liza and Sansa is terrifying. It's a great yeah. performance by Sophie Turner and Kate Dickey to, yeah. you know, no, put over how, how real this threat is. Hmm. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Santa. All right, then. Yeah, that's Santa's first win, by the way. Uh, Right, we'll be back next week for season four, episode eight, which is called The Mountain and the Viper. Uh, So, yeah, I wonder what happens in that episode. Um, After that, uh, we'll have episodes nine and ten of season four. And at the end of season four, we'll have our season four review and our interview with Curtis Napier, who was an extra on Game of Thrones from seasons uh, six to eight. Look forward to hearing that. Uh, we'll be back next week, as I said. Uh, thank you for bearing with us as the heat, yeah. is the 32 degrees Celsius heat, sent us slowly insane. Sorry about in that. Of course, of this episode. 